listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Wirt and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This week, we chat to Rachel Fowler, the founder and creative director of Tomlay. Tomlay is special for a lot of reasons. For starters, they were one of the first companies to start making new clothes out of pre-consumer waste, out of the offcuts and overstock coming from larger garment factories. But even then, a T-shirt still has to be cut out of fabric panels, resulting in some scraps. Tomlay painstakingly cuts these scraps down into thin little strips that are then knotted together to form a new yarn. The yarn is handwoven into new fabrics to make new garments. There is a great video on Huffington Post that showcases their process, which we will put a link to in the show notes. And while their zero waste process is certainly worth celebrating, it's actually not the reason we wanted to have Tonley on the show. They're one of the few brands we know of, quote unquote, sustainable or not, that does their own production. It's a brand and a manufacturer in one. To put it in simple terms, the people making the clothes that Tonley sells on their website are also on the Tonley payroll. Production isn't contracted out. Tonley is also special to me for very personal reasons. It's where I got my start in the fashion industry, and I feel really fortunate to have had the experience of working for Tonley before going on to work for Pactix, a manufacturing company that produces for many of the world's luxury eyewear brands. As Jesse and I have described before on this show, the relationship that Pactix had with its big name customers was sometimes really tough and asymmetrical in terms of how risk and reward was distributed. Pete, the owner of Pactix, is quite candid about this back in episode three, when he jokingly refers to himself as a bank rather than a manufacturer. But I'm not sure I would have been quite so sensitive to this dynamic had I not been able to compare the experience to Tonley, where the quote-unquote brand side of the business or the sales side of the business was one and the same as the production side of the company. So, with all that in mind, we wanted to talk to Rachel about why Tonley does its own manufacturing and what that meant for the company as they've grown, particularly when it came to finding investors. Rachel shares how being a manufacturer made it difficult to get investors on board, and how she's balanced the industry's emphasis on short-term shareholder returns with her convictions about what sustainability requires. In the second part of this conversation. We look at how Tomley's ownership structure shapes and enables a different kind of design process, and the shared risk and reward supports a more constructive relationship between the sales side of the business and the production side of the business. And that episode has actually also been released today, so you can continue listening to it right away if you want. And for it, we have the pleasure of being joined by Sri Own, Tomley's general manager in Cambodia. And one last quick announcement: We've teamed up with Transformers Foundation on a couple of live panel discussions for suppliers by suppliers. Our goal: to cross-pollinate between the denim supply chain and supply chains in the rest of the apparel industry. The first panel discussion is on Tuesday, the 13th of April, and is all about vertical integration. As supply chains came to a screeching halt last year, consolidation and vertical integration became the industry's latest buzzwords. 
But these are ambiguous terms that can mean a lot of different things. How and why do suppliers at various tiers decide which parts of the production process they're actually going to do? And how does this shape approaches to sustainability? The panel is free and open to the public. Be sure to register via the link on our homepage at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Let's start by going back to the beginning. Why did you start Tonle? And I'm, I'm curious to hear more about why you decided to do your own production, because I think a lot of these sustainably minded labels start with the idea of a brand and then sort of have to figure out how to do the production. Whereas I think for you, your journey was basically the opposite. Yeah, I mean, it's a long story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I studied textile design and art in college. And I was always interested in, I think, women's rights and politics and labor and, um, you know, creating a more just and equitable society. So I actually went to Cambodia in 2008 to do research on a Fulbright fellowship. Um, to meet artisans that were in the fair trade sector or, um, you know, calling themselves fair trade on some level and, you know, see what was working for them and what wasn't working for them. And I was also really coming at it from a perspective of, I want to learn um, about this business model, but also just about traditional crafts and how, how in a country like Cambodia, where making things by hand is still a, can provide a fair livelihood to people, which is pretty much... Mm. Um, lost in a lot of countries where essentially the cost of labor is, is so much higher. And so that was kind of my motivation for coming to Cambodia. And um, in the process of working with these different artisan groups and kind of seeing what was working for them and not working for them, um, I was able to learn a lot about traditional Cambodian craft and also the kind of eco economic um, forces that were driving um, the sale of handicrafts and, and then the flip side, you know, seeing the much larger garment industry that was, um, you know, sort of building up and developing in Cambodia. And, you know, there's essentially like these two polar extremes of these very small scale artisan cooperatives, a lot of which were run by, um, NGOs and nonprofits and, you know, very small hand handmade businesses, and on the other hand, you know, the, essentially the growing fast fashion industry. So this was um, mid-2008. <laughs> and I also saw, got to see firsthand the impact of the economic, um, you know, downturn of 2008 on and the economic crisis of 2008 on the garment industry. Um, anyway, to make a long story short, <laughs> you know, through my research, I was working with a group of um mostly women from one of the nonprofit partners I was working with who were interested in starting a business. And 
you know, it was partially like the social workers through the nonprofit were saying, hey, you know, these women have been discriminated against in their workplaces and they're looking to start something on their own. Um, And so I kind of joined up with them with the intention of saying, oh, hey, can I, you know, train you and work with you? And then eventually you're going to run this business on your own. Um, And then as I got to work with them and got to know them, that became clearly you know, that wasn't their intention. I think uh, a lot of the women sort of said to me, well, actually, we kind of want to just have a stable job (laughs) and not necessarily Mm. run our own business. So I kind of adapted and said, okay, well, I can stay here in Cambodia. It was a very fluid process. So I can stay here and, you know, I'll try to help you get this going and, you know, we'll see what happens kind of thing. And it just was sort of one step at a time but very much in dialogue with this team of people that eventually developed into what is now the Tonley team. And, you know, it was a very organic process, but very much centering, you know, the research that I had done and and the conversations I had had with lots of makers um, about, and and observations from the types of business models that people were attempting to run um, so it was a very much an ongoing dialogue and a process, you know, centering the people who were making the products and what their wishes and needs were. Right. Which I think it's just so unusual because I think what a lot of people don't always realize is that a lot of these independent, sustainable, quote unquote, sustainable brands are not doing their own production. And right. at Tonley, production has been at the heart of your story, really, from from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that a big part of that is because I'm a maker, you know, like I consider Mm -hmm. myself a maker at heart. And so I was interested in the, I I was much more interested in how things were made than how they were marketed and sold. (laughs) And so I was like, to me, it was only natural to go and find people to work with and collaborate and make things. And then selling them was kind of an afterthought, which, you know, in retrospect was (laughs) like, Oh, that's maybe not like the best way to build a business, but (laughs) <laughs> in my mind, I was like, you know, if you make a really good product, people are going to buy it. That was how I approached it. You need people who are well-trained and you need to collaborate with like skilled craftspeople to make a good product. So that was, I mean, even from a business perspective, I was like, well, surely it should be important for any business to know how to make a quality product. <laughs> Little did I know. Yes. I think I took that for granted, to be honest myself, like that, that is so unusual um, in the, in this industry. Yeah. Or like what a quality product is can mean very different yeah. things. And it's, yeah. I don't think, necess- and I don't think is necessarily like um, connected to craftsmanship. Absolutely. And I think the product that brands are selling is not a piece of clothing, it's a brand, it's a, it's a vision, it's a, you know, an idea, it's a logo, like that's their product. Their product is not clothing. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and actually talk about Tonley's ownership. Can you paint us like a, a, a picture of that, Rachel? Sure. Um, so I think when I first moved to Cambodia, I think I mentioned earlier, but in my in my mind, I was like, well, I'm just going to essentially contribute to these businesses that are already running or help people to start or like facilitate starting their own businesses. I didn't have any intention of, of starting or running my own business. Um, and then when I started working with the team of people that eventually became the Tilney team, 
you know, I was still had in my mind, like, okay, we're going to start this business and I'm going to kind of just like hand it over to you and then leave in a year. (laughs) And then, you know, that clearly became obvious that that wasn't very, very, that was very unrealistic um, for a number of reasons, because, you know, I think number one, fashion brands usually require a huge amount of upfront investment. Um, And essentially what we were trying to do, I mean, nobody really did it before in Cambodia, like, or like creating an entire business out of, um, you know, using waste from other, like, I mean, we were one of the early brands to be really focusing on pre-consumer textile waste. Um, and then also, you know, I trained everybody, like the first five employees, I trained them how to sew myself. (laughs) Like it was, you know, literally starting from scratch. And I think I, I did everything the hardest way possible. Um, and with, with no finance. With no like, money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I, so I, the Fulbright grant, you know, that was just for me to live on in Cam- in Cambodia for a year, but I had a little extra money from that because I lived like very, like in a, a simple way. And I took that money, which was like $5,000 maybe, and put that into the business. Like that's what I started the business with. And I had maybe like got like 2000 more dollars from friends and family. <laughs> so it was like a seven thousand dollar, you know, startup capital or something. You know, pun intended. I use the word scrappy a lot to describe <laughs> our business, um, but it's been very scrappy and also very much like growing on its own cash flow. On the one hand, it made you a scrappy business. Maybe I would use the word resourceful. Yes, but <laughs> but on the other hand, it allowed you to have total. You were the sole owner of Tonley, which was also pretty unusual. You didn't start out with any really any investors. Yes, so that so and in the beginning, to be honest, um, I really treated it like a nonprofit, and mm-hmm. our original even like domain name was .org actually. So, but I, I thought maybe this could be a cooperative model. And when I talk to, because for me, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, cooperatives are the most, you know, sort of high-minded, ethical, you know, equitable businesses. And when I talked to the team, you know, basically they didn't want that. They were sort of like, well, we would really, we don't want to essentially deal with the risk of having inconsistent paychecks, of having to manage orders, having to manage all of these risks and, and, you know, instability that you've discussed in, in great depth on this podcast that suppliers have to deal with. And, you know, we really want to have just well-paid jobs and we want to be able to go home at 5 PM and hang out with our kids and not have to stress, Mm. you know? And of course, as the business has grown and we have more different employees from different backgrounds, you know, people want different things. This is not something that can be applied to everyone. Um, so we've had some people come on board who really want to learn lots of new skills and move into different positions and, um, you know, want to maybe start their own businesses in the future. Um, but there are other people who just say, you know, Hey, I want to come to work and sew the same thing every day. And I find it peaceful and I don't want to stress and that's what I want to (laughs) do. It's like, you know, respecting yeah. that people have different goals and want different things. And that's, that's also fine. So, so what ended up happening, you know, first I was had this cooperative, you know, thought process realized that's not what this team currently wants. 
then, you know, we kind of were operating as a nonprofit. I mean, we didn't make profit for a long time, but it, that was when I had sort of realized, you know, there's a lot of problems with nonprofits. We can't, we obviously don't have time to get into that, but I realized at some point, okay, to make this truly work well, it needs to be a business. It needs to make money so that, you know, money can be reinvested and um, redistributed and be like, you need to make profit to be sustainable bottom line, right? You know, my goal has all, I've never, I didn't, I didn't want to be the sole owner of this business, but it just kind of happened that way. And also I think people often talk about what owners gain from owning businesses, but not necessarily the risk that they take on from owning businesses. And so in a, a lot of ways, this business that I own the majority of still has a lot of risk factors associated with it. And so, you know, I have had to buffer a lot of risk on a personal level uh, and financial level. And I don't necessarily want a lot of the people who work at Tonle to have to buffer that same level of risk. <laughs> um, and so it's been an interesting, you know, conversation. Like, how do we have that conversation with in progressive circles where people sort of say, well, why don't you just give this business to the workers? Let alone that that's not what they expressly want. <laughs> right. Um, right. So it's complicated and I don't necessarily, and I think, yeah, like there's a lot of privilege in being, in me being able to come to Cambodia and start a business like this. Um, on the other hand, you but know, you've also, you've also used that privilege, I think sort of at, at, I don't know what the right word is, but you've, you've, you've put it sort of diplomatically that you've been a buffer, but you've, you've really, you've really shouldered the, the, the risks associated with this business in a very personal way. And in many ways at, at a very like steep personal price financially and otherwise. Yeah. Uh, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why it's, it's hard to have these conversations. I think there's different, you know, there's different ways that people take on risk and different ways to assess that. And I think that a lot of investors think they're taking on risk when they make a risky investment, but their personal finance, like their personal livelihoods, finances, health, wellness, you know, emotional well-being, all those things are not compromised or risked in any way. Um, but then, you know, you have, let's say, workers in Cambodia working in a factory that is, and I'm not talking about totally clearly, but um, you know, let's say people who are working in an unsafe factory. Well, that's another kind of risk, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of times that risk is not considered as risky as that. Like I think in the, in the kind of capital, like the global capitalistic context, we think of risk a lot about money related to money, mm -hmm. but not about the other types of risk people take for certain jobs and, um, you know, to make these gears keep on turning. So it's really hard to compare like different levels of risk that people take on. Um, but I, you know, recognize that there's, there's complexity in essentially my position as a, as an owner of a business. So with that in mind, I know that in the last couple of years, you have gotten 
uh, looked at getting investment. Can you, are you willing to tell us a little bit about that and some of the challenges that you faced when you were looking for investment? It's an aspect of the, of sustainability that I think doesn't really get touched on very much because like when you, when you, when you get investors on board, there's a requirement for growth, right? And sort of how you have, um, I think balanced or, uh, yeah, balanced is maybe the right word. Your sort of, values from a sustainability perspective with what you needed to do to sort of keep your business going? Oh, well, I have a lot to say about the the capital and the investment side of things, because I think that a lot of the problems that we see in sustainability and lack thereof um, are really driven by cap are driven by capital and investment. Um, mm. And a big part of the problem, and this kind of goes to that, sh- like, having a more equitable distribution of risk and reward, a big part of the problem is that essentially investors like to invest in things that have low risk and high reward. Um, and for, you know, within the context, like the global financial markets, things that like intellectual property brands, um, technology patents, even buying and trading corporations, is more valuable than investing in the physical, like in, in, manufacturing in like raw materials in farming in in and those industries you know have are perceived by investors to be high risk and low reward because they have low margin and they have high risk i.e people 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 (laughs) a lot of times that's happening in countries as well where there's also perceived risk let's put it that way So I really wanted to be very intentional and careful about what types of partnerships I entered into, not only investors, but any type of partnership. And, but I, I sort of started to kind of go into these impact investing circles in the U S you know, I was part of a couple of accelerator programs and, you know, networking groups. And it just, it was very, it was just very odd. Like it was like all of a sudden there are all these investors who have been investing in this very traditional way. That's um, all about like, how can we cut costs and increase profit? And usually cutting costs means cutting back on labor, you know, and an investor's ideal investment is something that has almost no, like a business that has almost no staff and is able to, to create a technology that can sort of be infinitely scaled with no um, operational costs. That's the investor's dream scenario which is the opposite of any kind of manufacturing or production. Yeah. And we saw this even when we talked to, we talked to one on the podcast, we talked to one American manufacturer in episode 19, um, who's manufacturing in uh, Alabama. And it was interesting because he comes from the book industry. So he invented this technology for on-demand book printing and now is bringing that technology to the fashion industry. And we talked about that with him about investment and how he got investment for this, you know, U.S.-based manufacturing company. And he said, well, yeah, I had to sell it as a technology. Yep, exactly. And that's what so many investors told me. I mean, like straight up, they said, well, can you patent any of your technology? Well, can you... Um, you know, as I started talking to investors, like, I think first of all, they didn't know what to do with me because again, like we're a brand and a manufacturer. And so, you know, some people wanted us to 
essentially outsource our manufacturing, which I was like, well, that's not never going to happen because that's like the core of what we do is we're a manufacturer first. And then the second, you know, was exactly that. Like, well, do you have some technology? Can you, you can patent, can you trademark your process? Can you, um, you know, do this, that, and the other thing, because that's, what's valuable. And, you know, and I, I, don't want to throw people under the butt, but there's some really fundamentally frustrating things about this. All of the work that needs to be done to improve a lot of these processes and systems has to be done at the manufacturing level, but the brands are the ones who are getting the investment and their incentive is not aligned with investing in production because they don't own production. And I think capital cycles as well, it's not even just the amount of money they want to make, but speed at which they want to make it are also not aligned with you know, fixing a lot of these problems. So, I mean, just one really tangible example, I was, you know, reading about this. Well, it was actually in the documentary River Blue. Um, They were talking about this technology to print on jeans um, that would be totally water. Like they basically print those like, you know, kind of sandblasted patterns on denim and it's waterless. It's like non-toxic for the workers. It's like way more environmentally friendly And they were saying, you know, the cost per gene is actually the same, but it's the upfront capital that they need to, um, and that sort of pays itself back over like three to five years. But so the thing that's actually stopping them from making the sustainability innovation happen is not the cost per gene, it's the upfront capital. Well, why don't they have the upfront capital? It's because essentially brands don't want to invest in the fact, the brands won't invest in the factories because the investors don't want to invest well, you get your money back in five years rather than in like one cycle, one season, which is what they're, the investors are looking for. They're looking for like quarterly profits, basically. Pete, the owner of the company that Jesse and I used to work for and who we interviewed in episode three, used to joke that he was a bank, not a factory mm-hmm. owner. Yeah. Because he was having to pay upfront for all of his workers' you know, salaries, as well as all the fabrics and raw materials that were being used six months at least before he saw any payments. So not only are these like manufacturers, not the ones getting the investment, their cash flows are already extra tight because they're fronting all of these costs of production and assuming all of that risk with relatively few, few guarantees. Um, And it, it also reminds me of a report that came out by McKinsey, I think in August called um, fashion on climate. And that report looks at carbon emissions in the fashion industry. And one of the graphics that has stuck with me is this um, pie chart, which shows where those emissions are coming from. You know, is it on the consumer side after a product has been purchased? Is it, you know, on the brand side and within brand a brand's operations and sh- even shipping and logistics? Or is it on the production side? And that graphic showed that 60% of the industry's carbon emissions stem from activities related to production. And so as you point out, Rachel, it's kind of like this, the production level is where the change is. If we really want to do something about the industry's environmental impact, it's the production level that we need to be looking at. And that report goes on to talk about how we how the industry might 
reverse or shift course in terms of its carbon emissions. And really what this particular report saw as driving that change was also going to come from the production level. So particularly investments in new equipment and technology and machinery. And that was sort of the question mark in my mind as I was reading this is, okay, you've got these suppliers who already have incredibly tight cash flows and don't have a lot of change lying around to buy new machines. But also, even if they did, you know, what incentive would they have to do that when their customers, the brands, tend to take a very short-term view of things. So here's the thing too, like investors will invest in an engineering firm that develops a technology, but then like they make the money by selling patents for that technology, right? Or selling the machines to manufacturers, but the manufacturers then don't have the money to buy that stuff because it takes this massive capital. And like even a lot of the factories that would produce like, let's say there's a new like fabric that's developed that requires like a whole bunch of different, like a whole different factory to produce it. Like, okay, well, someone's got to invest to build that factory, but if there's no money in actually producing the fabric made from that beautiful technology, that's just been spent like, you know, $25 million to develop. Well, the investors still make their money because they sold the technology, but there's no manufacturers who have the capital to buy the, you know, equipment to produce that thing. So there's a whole bunch of amazing technology that's out there. But I'm like, okay, at the end of the day, like the innovations that we need for this industry to change are actually pretty simple. It's just that nobody wants to do them because they're not like short term profitable. There's a company that has raised millions of dollars to develop new technology for recycling fabric. And they have not recycled any fabric And yet they've raised millions of dollars from investors. And then you have Tonle, who like investors will say, oh, no, I'm not going to invest in that because you're not developing any interesting technology. I'm like, meanwhile, while this brand has spent, you know, 10 years developing a technology, we've actually recycled like hundreds of thousands of pounds of textiles. (laughs) I'm like, we have the technology to do it. It's actually not that hard. It's just that nobody wants to just do it. Tonly is using the scrap fabric, but it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's a labor intensive process where a new machine sounds very fashion, sounds very shaling. And it's, uh, mm. it's a pattern you can repeat. You just need to make the machine again, again, again. But for when we talk about a labor intensive process, then you probably need to revise it case by case. I mean, if you want to copy the same pattern in India, maybe it's not the same process. So it just yeah. shows a lot of the ca- characters of today's investment. What do they care most? It's definitely not what the manufacturers need the most. Yeah. Tonle does have some investors and we were able to come up with investment structures that, um, you know, I think will benefit the investors, but also benefit the business and benefit the team. And so, you know, I think I was very specific about the types of people I wanted to work with. And mostly it was about, um, you know, their values and making sure that our values were aligned, but also being very clear that this is not a business model that's going to turn around and make a quick profit. Um, we are investing in people. We are investing in, you know, resources, in operations, in, you know, in, in, in these costs on the ground and fixed costs on the ground in Cambodia. 
And I was very transparent and straightforward with the investors about that because I wanted them to know that this is what we're doing. And a lot of people that I talked to weren't on board with that, but I was able to find, you know, some really great investors who have been really on board with what we're doing. And so I think that, you know, there are people out there who are considering different structures and I just, I don't want to be misleading because we have raised some capital, but you know, I think it's really important when you're considering, you know, a sustainability model that how you raise capital is really going to dictate, you know, how sustainable you're actually going to be able to be. Why do you, I'm curious, why do you think, what was different about those investors? Why do you think they took a different view? Well, it's interesting. Have you read the book Winners Take All? <laughs> it's been recommended to me so many times. Oh my times, goodness. <laughs> but I haven't actually read it. Well, okay. So one of my investors, she actually recommended that book. And Oh wow. Yeah. That says something. And that was and that book is all about, I mean, the subtitle is The Elite Charade of Changing the World. <laughs> and essentially how big businesses through, you know, using powerful PR are convincing people that they're the good guys now because they're doing this good work and in many ways suppressing um, democratic institutions that actually help to keep corporations in check. I think that there are some people who have a lot of money who realize that wealth hoarding is actually hurting um, not only a lot of other people, but also hurts them in the long run, right? Like I think that there's um, a school of thought that realizes like that these very, very like extractive models that allow some people to earn huge amounts of money while at the same time exploiting the majority um, are not going to really turn out well for our future, for our collective future, <laughs> whether that be for the planet or for their, you know, children or grandchildren. There are people who realize that, but um, they are few and far between. I think the short sightedness is, is really what's alarming to me because at the end of the day, like none of us are going to be able to escape from, from climate change. Um, some people can feel the effects of it worse than others. But I mean, if you look at like California right now, I mean, we, I experienced two months of, of fires and smoke and some of the richest people in the world that live in California cannot escape from this problem. Nobody in a, who's working for a brand is a bad person or full of bad intentions. I mean, at least I have yet to come across one. Just like factory managers are not evil people out to exploit their workers at any cost, or at least once again, I have yet to come across one. But there are sort of things in place that keep people behaving in a certain way that might be contradictory to their values. And a lot of times that ties back to a very short-term understanding of shareholder mm. obligations. Hmm. And not only short-term, but also very narrow. At least that's my, my personal view. The, the chain of the consequences is too long. So as an individual shareholder or as a group of shareholders, it's not easy to see the consequences far down at the end of the chain. I think that's a big part of it. And I also think that there's even structures in place to keep shareholders from even knowing. Like if we think about how a lot of money is invested, well, if you have, like if you have money in a traditional like retirement fund, you're probably invested in some companies that don't align with your values. But again, like you said, Jesse, it's like so disconnected from the reality of like the consequences of those actions. And it's so diluted in so many ways, like diluted in so many ways 
that you don't feel like the tangible impact of like me putting this money into my retirement savings is actually investing in this company that's doing this like that's like using these exploitative buying practices that disproportionately hurt garment factory workers you know like it's so convoluted in a lot of ways eventually the consequences is far so disconnected and um, it's so invisible as well well and we have a whole like approach i think collectively as an industry to sustainability which is focused on policies and focused on audits and focused on like you know brands basically being able to show and to verify that their behavior you know that their suppliers are not engaging in certain you know, unethical or irresponsible behavior, as opposed to a sustainability industry or an approach to sustainability that focuses on having people hold up the mirror and say, okay, these are big problems. I can't solve them by myself, but I'm going to take a hard look at myself and see like, in what ways am I responsible? In what ways might my business practices be responsible or contributing to the wrong incentive structure? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's part of the problem, too, is then we have start to see things like ESG investments and people who want to invest responsibly. But then, like, I think the parameters and things that we look at for determining what's a quote unquote sustainable investment also kind of uh, need to be flipped or need to be reexamined. Yeah. And I think there's also a I was reflecting today on the. Um, so, at the you know, there's a statement, I think, to form a more perfect union you know, regarded like related to the mm-hmm. United States. It's like, but you can't make a more perfect something, right? In order to improve, you need to acknowledge that there is a fault. And so mm-hmm. I think that like to create a more perfect union exemplifies the fundamental problem with where things are in America. Like you can't say that, oh, we're going to make things better when you haven't acknowledged what those problems are. Like you have to first undo the harm. And on that thoughtful note, we're going to conclude this episode. But don't forget to tune into part two, which is also out now, where we look at how Tonley's ownership structure shapes and enables a different kind of design process and ultimately a different kind of production process. And for that episode, we're joined by Rachel and Sreon, Tonley's general manager in Cambodia. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.